In conclusion, this book, while excellent in its analysis of social history, detailed enough so that more seasoned researchers will find I'm it. Robert Castanello. I'm the Vice President of Research and Publications at HNET, and this is the Art of the Review podcast. I'm Yelena Kalinsky, Managing Editor of HNET Reviews. And this is a podcast where we examine reviewing and criticism as an academic form. This podcast is brought to you by HNET and the University of Central Florida's Center for Humanities and Digital Research. Welcome to the Art of the Review podcast. Okay, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Art of the Review. And in this episode, we're coming back to the topic of peer review. That's right. In a previous episode... Robert, you interviewed the editor of the University of West Virginia Press about peer-reviewing a book manuscript submission. In this episode, we're going to talk about a slightly different peer review process. This is peer review for an edited scholarly edition, so a set of original papers. And here we'll talk about the process whereby the procedures for editing um, have to meet a set of guidelines and standards. Right, and this is, of course, a peer review uh, set of standards. It's a, and again, it's, it's, it's different from the episode um, concerning West Virginia University Press. And what we have here, I'm, I interviewed a, a colleague of mine in the English department. His name is um, Mark Camrath, and he has been working for the past two decades on a 19th century author named Charles Brockton Brown, and Charles Brockton Brown was a, a quite prolific um, author, and he wrote histories, he wrote essays for um, magazines and newspapers, and he wrote um, fiction as well, I believe. And so what Mark did is he was pursuing a scholarly edition, and people might be more familiar with a scholarly edition if we explained it has just the, the collected works of an individual, of an author. You know, a lot of times these get um, published and bound in a single volume. These are what we refer to as scholarly editions. And so the thing that Mark wanted to do is he worked with a few other Brown scholars, and they decided to collab- collaborate on creating an online um, open access scholarly edition to Brown's papers, and that's what they've been pursuing. And what you know, I didn't realize because I'm not in the English or literature field, is that there's actually a peer review process for this. Because imagine this: you're taking someone's work from, you know, say the 18th, 19th century, you know, and 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 you have to input all of this, you know, into a document or into an online uh, database system or something like that. And of course, there could be errors that occur and things like this. So the peer review process really is a way to sort of make sure there is a uniform set of standards and a check that the scholarly edition um, has been thoroughly examined so it represents the actual original prose as best that it can. And one of the things that Mark explained to me is that he actually submitted to two peer review process. And the one he talks about at great length is the Modern Languages Association process. And what they do is they certify scholarly editions. So if there's a one or more editors that are working on an author to put their work into a volume, whether it's a printed book or if it's something online, the MLA has this peer review process where 
they have a set of guidelines and they send a peer reviewer in to sort of test the index, look at a variety of ancillary materials and support materials that the editor created for the project. And if the project meets the standards of the MLA, the MLA essentially certifies that. So you know that if you're looking at a scholarly edition, that that's been MLA certified, and you know that the index has been, you know, sort of feverishly looked through, and the supporting essays have all been read and peer-reviewed. Now, the other process, which Mark talks about just sort of briefly, he mentions, which is why I want to talk a little bit about this, but they also went through what's called uh, the nine peer review process. And the Nines is essentially this uh, website that's called 19th Century Scholarship Online. So if you did an internet search for Nines, N-I-N-E-S, 19th Century Scholarship Online, you go to a website where a number of people who are working on 19th century authors are putting their collected works into this large database that could be searched across the authors or search specific authors or anything like that. So so Mark was able to get the Brown Project into this nines uh, overall database of 19th century authors. And they have a whole nother set of peer review um, process and standards, which Mark talks a little about in the interview. Yeah, this one is specifically for digital scholarship. That's right, yeah. So Mark mentions what it's like in the interview to go through this process with a book, like a, a book that's printed that might sit on the shelf in a library or in a bookstore or something. But then he talks a great deal about the process of doing the peer review for a digital scholarly edition, which is really what he's discussing here. Great. Well, let's listen to that interview. Mark, I want to thank you for uh, joining me today. If you could, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Sure. Mark Camrath, um, teaching the Department of English at the University of Central Florida. I co-direct the Center for Humanities and Digital Research, and I've been here for about 18 years. And we, we'd spoke about um, your work in the digital humanities, and you um, brought up the Brown Project. And you could tell me a little bit about your inspiration for the Brown Project and how you conceived of that specifically as a digital project? Uh, yes, back in the 1990s, when I was finishing up my dissertation at Nebraska, my dissertation was on this particular author, Charles Brockton Brown. He's considered America's first professional author, born in 1771 and died in 1810. And so there several people across the country were studying him at the time, but my dissertation was uh, not looking at his novels, but looking at some of his historical writing his Annals of Europe and America from 1807 to 1809. And so as I was finishing up the dissertation, I was in touch with another graduate student, uh, Stephen Shapiro, and at that time we thought it might be a good idea to put together a panel dealing with Brown from a new or a different canonical perspective. And so our goal was to kind of explore Brown's work beyond his novels, beyond his Gothic novels, and to see who else was interested in doing that. And so we attended a conference at the Modern Language Association probably around 1996 or so. Uh, and then in 1998, from the momentum we had from our earlier panel, uh, we uh, started a, a national conference. And this was held in Philadelphia. And so this really brought together scholars from around the country and uh, across the Atlantic, from Germany and the Netherlands and other countries. And it's at that point that I met Fritz Fleischmann, 
and Alfred Weber and others who were, unbeknownst to me, working on other parts of Brown's writing. Um, I also met John Holmes, who had been transcribing Brown's correspondence. And so it was just a moment in 1998 where scholarly interests came together and we decided to uh, forge an alliance of sorts as far as trying to get Brown's work out there. By out there, I mean, number one, publishing print books, uh, selections of Brown's uh, material beyond the novels, and then two, trying to take advantage of the Internet as we knew it back then in the, in the late 1990s. And so, like I said, uh, the Internet was evolving, and so at that time we consulted with the University of Virginia. David Seaman was a, a leading librarian who was involved at the time, and he advised us on how to work with the coding of text, because if we wanted to make these texts available on the Internet, we would have to code them electronically and make them accessible to people. So we started that whole process in the late 1990s, and around 2000, I was asked to basically become the general editor of the Brock and Brown Project because of the support mechanism I had here at the University of Central Florida, where I was in my career, and that kind of thing. And so we brought the project down here to University of Central Florida, developed a website, the help of several other people, and then we started to look for funding. To come back to something then, yeah. so this installation that you're talking about, it functions in a way a hard copy text source can't. Like, I mean, if this were 30 years ago and you wanted to write a, or edit a compendium on Brown, mm-hmm. it couldn't do the things that you're describing now with this digital Probably. Right. I mean, I would say that, you know, just use an index, for example, a typical book index. With your typical book index, someone is going through the book and deciding uh, which terms, are either they're using a search key function or something else, but they're deciding which terms are going to be pertinent and, and belong in an index. Um, and they're going through that that process, whether they're using you know, a card catalog system or something electronic, but they are going through a process of determining what subject matter is worth indexing and is, is documented in, in the book. With a digital archive of the sort that we have, we can really use, um, I would say, search functions uh, uh, in more elaborate ways. And just as you can do Boolean searches you know, in a typical library catalog using and or not and and so forth, uh, you can do that with this particular archive. A, it expands your search possibilities because you can type in you know a single word like democracy and God, and the indexer, the X, XTF, will will render or display every instance of that word and where where it appears. But if you want to qualify your searches, uh, you can qualify your searches using, like I said, Boolean indicators, and um, your results will then be more tailored to your search interests. So can you talk a little bit about the steps that the MLA went through for your review process? And did you seek them or did they seek you? How, how does that work? So you're asking about the steps. How does a, uh, a volume of letters by Charles Brockton Brown or a volume of his political pamphlets, how does that get reviewed? The Modern Language Association is the largest organization for teachers, instructors of, of English, and they have various subcommittees. One of the committees is the what's called the Committee on Scholarly Editions. And if you were to go to their website, you, know, you would find that they have a rather lengthy uh, vetting criteria, close to maybe, again, 90 items. But these various criteria are meant to provide a, a rigorous examination of the text, a rigorous editing of the text, and a sustainable plan for 
preserving the text. What typically happens is you reach a point uh, with your volume where you are you contact them and then they put you uh, in contact with a, a specialist who then asks to see the works that you've edited, records that you have. They want to see, for instance, your historical essay, your, your textual essay, your apparatus as far as uh, notes, samples of notes. They want to understand your process. They want to understand, for instance, um, you know, how many times things were proofread at certain points and who did the proofreading. And so it's really a rigorous set of guidelines that uh, one hopes to meet and you then get feedback from that person as well on how well you met the guidelines. This process can take anywhere from three to six months just you know, for, for the vetter and then once you hear from the veteran MLA they will say well in order to go forward you have to you know, remediate this or uh, address that with the volume. Let's say, for instance, um, your historical background was not uh, sufficient or you did not provide enough history on the composition of the text or your notes, your annotations are, are sporadic, not detailed enough, or for instance, uh, your your emendations, the, the changes you made to the text aren't, aren't documented in a clear way or, or consistently. They have a set of criteria they really want you to uh, embrace and that set of criteria really does revolve around accuracy and consistency about what you're doing and how you do it and and being explicit in other words about uh, your editorial protocols and then following through with them sometimes people will lay out a set of protocols of things they're going to be doing in the text but then do they actually execute that with the the work itself with the with the editing itself and sometimes there's a, a, a lag or a lapse and so the MLACSC is is there to to provide the most rigorous peer review possible. And so it's very difficult to get the, the, a seal for a printed work. So they do they just printed volumes and digital? Products? Yes, they do printed volumes. Primarily is there... Um, and is this a way to sort of enforce a uniformity and expectations? Yes, well? yes, it's a way to have a measure of uniformity in terms of scholarly excellence from one product to another, from one author, one text to the next, as much as possible. They also have guidelines, as you suggested, uh, for digital editions. That involves a different set of questions as far as usability and so forth, but some things are the same, but others are different in terms of how you're using media and uh, metadata and how you are preserving that. All right, well, I want to thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. We will link to the items discussed in this episode, including the Charles Brockton Brown Electronic Archive and Scholarly Edition, the Nines 19th Century Scholarship Online, as well as other links at the show notes blog at H Podcast. Also, go there to read more and share your thoughts on this episode.